So uh, we've got to continue our summer series and looking forward to today. Glad we can all be here. Um, some of you know I've been studying the life of Francis Scott Key. He started 19 years ago working on a book, and um, maybe if I ever get to retire or we become, become fully socialist and the government pays us to sit around, then I'll have time to finish my book. But until then, it'll just be a, a dream project. Um, so bear with me today. I may weave in and out. I may not repeat things, but I may touch on a subject and come back to it later. I've got so much in my head that it may not always come out as smoothly as I'd like it to. Um, but I trust that it will be encouraging uh, for us this morning. So let's pray and get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the chance to gather. We thank you for Christ and salvation. And we also thank you for this country that we live in, that for over 200 years we've had freedoms that the world has never only dreamed of. It's hard for us. We realize this isn't heaven. This isn't the eternal state. Um, but there's been a lot of blessings in our nation. And we have a rich heritage and it's hard to see uh, history torn down and um, people, Christian people, um, misaligned or maligned. And um, they made mistakes. We make mistakes. Um, they were wrong. We're wrong. But I pray that we would learn um, to think how we should think about the past and the encouragement we can have that whatever we do in our lives, uh, Ultimately, we're not judged by what the world 100 years from now thinks of us. Uh, we're judged by what you think of us, and our reward is great if we're faithful in our generation. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, um, Francis Scott Key, I just want to give a little anecdote. 182 years ago this week, on the east lawn of the Capitol building in D.C., there was a Sunday school gathering. That Sunday school gathering had started off as a big parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. 1,500 students are marching down. Back in those days, when it was the July 4th, it was a, it was a community thing. They would, they would have speeches. They would have celebrations. There would be cannon fire. There would be, it sounded like that last night in our, outside the windows I was studying um, with the, the rednecks and their fireworks. Um, but just picture, this is the East Atlanta Capitol, almost two, over 2,000 people, you know, various Sunday schools. And they, they reported this in the newspaper. You know, each church had its banner. The kids would march down the, in the, uh, the, the high society, high politicians. They would parade down Pennsylvania Avenue and gather on the east lawn of the Capitol. And July 4th was a Sunday, so this was July 5th. And there were readings of the Declaration of Independence, speeches, and that sort of thing. Well, a reporter for the Baltimore Sun said that today began with cannon fire and bell ringing. The businesses all agreed to close for the day. And as they gather on the Capitol lawn there, you know, under the sh spreading trees, um, one of the speakers that day is Francis Scott Keyes, almost 62, and the U.S. is turning 65. Basically, he and the country grew up together. And he gives a speech that day, and when he dies a year later, people will say that his, his testimony was one to be remembered because he'd been a Sunday school teacher for much of his life, and it was only fitting that in these last closing years of his life um, and months of his life that he would give a, a speech to a Sunday school group this large, gathered on the eastern lawn of the Capitol. At his death in January 1843, a former pastor said of him that he, that he praised his intellect. He was a speaker, a public speaker. Um, he was a poet, a patriot, but most of all, he was a Christian. You can slide two. Um, you wouldn't know that today, or maybe you would, based on the news of the day. This was the first monument erected to him in San Francisco back in the 1880s. And this is what it looks like today, um, or what's left of it. 
But then maybe you do. Let's try slide three. Um, it's funny how we can't use current events to always interpret what we think about the past. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Brittany Griner, um, Women's National Basketball Association teammate who used to kneel for the national anthem in 2020, but after 10 months in a Russian prison, she's committed to standing for the national anthem. Go to the next slide. Just being able to hear my national anthem, see my flag, I definitely, I definitely want to stand. So it's when we value our, our past and the heritage and the sacrifices and how good it really is here, it can change our perspective. But the past, the present is not always a good way to look at the past. Um, so go on to slide five there for us. So this is Key as a young man. So I want to consider why, why Key? Why, why should we talk about him? One thing that drew me to him is that he wasn't a pastor, a missionary, or a full-time Christian worker, which where many of our Christian biographies tend to focus on these godly men, and, and we need these men and women. But most of us aren't that. Most of us are just lawyers or truck drivers or software engineers. Most of us don't have high positions of power. Most of us are not um, in full-time ministry. Not that that's necessarily a high position of power, but most of us are just, just kind of average people living our lives. He was a Christian who lived and worked and served in his time and place. And uh, he had a poet's mind. He was a writer. And, you know, he writes the national anthem eventually, but that's because he spent his life writing. And he would always, anything that happened in life, he was interested in. He wrote a poem about when his cousin mended his tobacco pouch. He wrote her a little poem. And um, when he sat with his cousin, who was, his, her eyesight was failing her, he wrote a, a hymn called, a poem called, I Sat Beside an Aged Saint. And I would say he didn't just look at life, he looked through life. Everything, he, it just ca caused him to ponder. And um, we don't really, live, I've heard somebody say we don't live in a very poetic age. Um, and I think I'm drawn to Key because um, this, is a, this is an age for activity and sports and lots of other things. But if you're somebody like me who's more default to the, the writing, thinking, and poetry side of life, you kind of feel left out sometimes in, in this society. So if you have a disposition uh, that's not sports-oriented or activity-oriented, and you're more of a quiet person who likes to think and reflect and even read poetry from time to time, you may feel alone in this generation, but you're not alone historically. And I think that's one reason that I'm drawn to him as well. Um, I'm also drawn to him because I grew up in Maryland. Um, I used to, as a kid, I would climb a tree in our backyard, and we were about five miles from the Inner Harbor of Baltimore. And we could see, if I climbed high enough, I could see the Inner Harbor. And I would sit there at the Orioles games as a kid in the third, place, third, third base side, up, up high because it was the cheaper seats. Um, but that gave us a view of the Inner Harbor. And when we would, they would play the national anthem and they would say the bomb's bursting in air, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there where those bombs would have been bursting in air. And it would get, give me goosebumps as I would sit there with those Orioles games realizing that I was there just a few years off schedule. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd always heard that there were a lot of Christians in, in America's past. But as I read Key and I read some of the things I wrote and I started reading his letters, I said, this, this guy knew the Lord. And if we have time later, I'll, I'll read one of his letters. His letters are full of scripture, and he just, he's not cutting and pasting. This is all handwritten stuff. So if it's coming out of his pen, it's coming out of his mind. And he, he will put little quotes about every, every other sentence as a quote of, of some piece of Bible, Bible verse that he's using and applying to the situation that he's writing about. And so he's just a really, really, uh, a godly man with flaws, but uh, still someone whose life we should be aware of. So his family background, 
On the key side, his family were wealthy plantation owners in southern Maryland. They were a very prominent colonial society, and they had positions of power, attorney general of the colonial Maryland. Um, and so there was, there was wealth, there was privilege, um, there was prominence in that side. His mom's side grew up, they lived over here in Chester County, uh, and eventually moved down to the Frederick, Maryland area, where his grandfather owned a tavern and a hotel, sort of like the public gathering place of that day. Um, and so he became a, a, a somewhat prominent local citizen in this tiny town of Frederick, Maryland that was still up and coming at that time. Um, in his childhood, slide six there, this is a, a view from where he, he grew up about 15 miles south of Gettysburg, just below the Maryland line. And uh, the landscape hasn't really changed much since that, since that day. Um, this is the Catoctin Mountain, if you're familiar with the, the Frederick area. So his front view at the front door was basically basically this view. Uh, just a, a good place if you are the reflective type and you, you look, like to walk out and look at creation. Um, he was born in 1779, basically grew up with, Amer- with America. His father had been uh, had fought several in several battles for the Continental Army, and um, he grew up in a rural area. And let's say he was... His mother and grandmother were godly. I don't think his father was kind of a blank slate. I don't believe he was a Christian. But he does have the influence of his, his, his mother and his grandmother. He just has one sister, and his father is often in and out of debtor's prison, um, as was common in those days. Um, so, next slide there. Um, at the age of 10, he goes off to boarding school in Annapolis, which is 60 miles from home. And as an adult, he will talk about how hard that was to be taken away from his family and they would study six days a week and they got two weeks off for Christmas and that's about it. Um, and that's why these people back then knew stuff because they worked hard <laughs> in, in, their, in their studies. Uh, St. John's College exists even today. It's just across the street from the Naval Academy and it's a classical school. You, you go there and you study the classics and that's what he grew up. He was, he was raised in the classics and his early letters to his college classmates afterwards are full of Latin. They're full of references to the, the classics. Um, so I think this really prepared him for the kind of writing that he would do later. We see an exu- uh, example of his personality when he's little. His, the earliest letter we have of him is when he's about 10 years old. And I'm going to try to read it the way he punctuates it. So he's very excited to have moved from this rural area of Frederick County down to Annapolis where the, there's plays and there's social life and there's activities. I won't read the whole letter, but I'll try to, uh, try to copy. Uh, Dear Mama, I was at a play, The Suspicious Husband, and it was very clever, a great deal cleverer than Love in a Village. And Robinson Crusoe and the man turned himself into a dog, and it was beautiful. I'm in the Bible at school. I'm in Kings, and I'm but three pages to get into Chronicles. I have to memorize chapter 10 of Nehemiah by heart these holidays, and it's all hard words, but I hope I will get it. And Robinson Crusoe, when all the savages danced, and Friday was a Negro, and all, ma- all night, Mama, they were dancing in my room. Aunt Scott says I dreamt it, but indeed I did not, for I see them all, and I wasn't a bit afraid. For I like to see him. It was so pretty. And how does Grandma and Sister do? And when are you coming down? I bring Sister with you. And you promised me you would ask. But Grandma hasn't been down to see me since I got here. Though I went all the way up to Frederick to see her. But I hope when summer comes, she'll come. Etc. Etc. So there's no punctuation. It's just a run-on. Just you can see a little t- excited ten-year-old boy telling his mom what's going on back back at school, 60 miles from home. Next slide there, slide eight. Annapolis is a it's, if you've not been to Annapolis, it's very much like Williamsburg. Um, not quite as touristy, but still, a lot of these old houses are still there. Cobblestone streets and, this, and the like. Um, but he grows up, and, and in this social environment, it's not good for his, his soul at, at, at first. Um, 
There's a lot of secularizing influences at school, a lot of enlightenment literature, um, a lot of rise of atheism and, and unbelief in this time period. And it's during his time at St. John's College that he really starts to really lo- live for pleasure. Uh, we'll see later that his, um, his mother had really prayed for him and really desired that he would become a Christian. Um, but his time at, at St. John's almost drew him away from the faith and he just lived for pleasure. Um, after he graduated from college at the age of 17, he spends about five more years in Annapolis becoming a lawyer, getting practical skills, and is working for his uncle's firm in, in Annapolis. But I want to get a sense, because his life is so different after his conversion, I want to get a sense of what his life is like beforehand. Uh, he's just, he, he will say he's living for pleasure. Um, he writes to his friend, he says, I'm going to buy one of our trading company's vessels if I find $1,000 somewhere. I will freight her with fun and with frolic, and with youth at the prow and pleasure at the helm, I'll dash over to you. He lives on the eastern shore of Maryland. And we'll go with no other pilot wherever she steers us. And then he goes on to write another letter to this friend. He said, I dined yesterday at Belmont. Matilda has gone to Baltimore, and of course the fascination of her eyes did not prevent me eating a hearty dinner. I have, however, seen her since I returned, and were I to estimate beauty by the Dutch standard, I should say she was handsomer by a great many pounds than when I last saw her. If you didn't get that yet. Judging beauty by the Dutch standard, she's handsomer by a great many pounds than when I last saw her. He goes on to say that he's, de- he's frustrated by the insipid sameness of Annapolis. Talks about all the couples pairing up. Sixteen weddings are talked about. He says, God knows when I'll be able to leave Annapolis. He's just stuck in a, he's stuck in a law firm just doing clerk kind of stuff, and he's bored. He wants to get out and live things up. He says, one Olivia shall not satisfy, my, satisfy me. I have generally kept up about half a dozen. He goes on and talks about all these different things and um, talks about playing this really nasty prank on one of his professors when he, he sent a letter to this professor and he said, oh, pretending to be somebody else, he said, I'm going to get married at 6 o'clock such and such a night. It's a, pouring, it's a night pouring out rain. The professor rides out and just gets soaking wet and just realizes it's just a wild goose chase and he just has an ecstatic um, you know, relishing this, this enjoyment here. Um, I guess you can go to the next slide there. Um, yeah, this is uh, his wife is Mary Lloyd. Uh, her family owns one of the largest plantations on the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, back during President Clinton's uh, administration, there was the Y Accord signed between um, WYE, signed between Israel and Palestine, and that took place uh, basically in the that huge mansion that still exists over Maryland's eastern shore. But Mary did not grow up in a Christian home. Her father had said at his funeral he wanted new sermons at his funeral or anything else like that. So she grows up very wealthy and without any sort of spiritual influence. And throughout uh, our knowledge of what her, she's like, she's really a blank slate, too. We have hundreds of his letters and virtually none of hers. I do have a, an example of where he asks one of her sisters, who was a Christian, to try to you know, speak to Mary and be an influence on her for the gospel. But um, they have a great marriage, um, but uh, we don't really know where she stands spiritually for most of her life. He meets her before he's a Christian, I believe. So they, they get married. Uh, and one of the previous houses there is where they got married. And uh, he becomes friends with uh, Roger Brooke Tawney, which is a name you may recognize. He later becomes Chief, Ju- Chief Justice of the United States. And he is the Chief Justice during what's known as the Dred Scott decision, a very important issue over slavery. Um, Tawney, spelled T-A-N-E-Y today, is viewed as a very uh, evil person because he approved the Dred Scott decision. But as I won't try to bring out later, these, when we look at Christians and slavery and how we interpret the past, it's not as black and white as we would be led to believe today. Um, 
and I don't want to get into too many details there, but I will say that Tawney did had freed all of his own slaves, uh, even though he made a decision that's not popular today. Tawney will actually marry Key's sister, and they'll be brother-in-law and friends the rest of their lives. Um, where are we at with slides here? Try to jump ahead. Okay. So they moved from Annapolis out to Frederick. Frederick's still a small town. There's not much business going on. And he decides to stay there for a few years, but then he eventually will move down to Washington, D.C. area and go on to there. Next slide. Okay. So Georgetown is a, a small town on the top of the Potomac River next to Washington, D.C. Georgetown existed before America was a nation. It was just a little port. It was as far up the Potomac River as you could go with a ship. And Washington, D.C. later became the big city that kind of absorbed and dwarfed Georgetown, so it's kind of, Georgetown's now lost in the, in the larger D.C. area. But when, the, when Key moved there, Georgetown was the, the nice city, and D.C. truly was a swamp. They, you may not know that D.C. was actually built on a swamp, and that's when they thought about draining the swamp. It truly was a swamp that they drained to build a city on. And um, when, when, they, when Key was early in life, nobody wanted to live in D.C. It was just dirty streets, mosquitoes everywhere, mud everywhere, dust in, in, in the summertime. And Georgetown was the place to live if you were going to have any kind of a decent existence. And he'll live here for about 25 years, right in Potomac River. You see the river in the background there. He'll move away uh, when the CNO Canal uh, basically gets cut right through his backyard and no longer makes the living there any fun. So he, he's going to practice law in, in uh, D.C., in Georgetown, for, for most of his life. He's, he's just going to be a lawyer. His uncle had been a prominent lawyer in, in D.C., and so he works with his uncle, and he quickly rises to prominence. Uh, by the time he's about 24, 25, he's actually arguing a case in front of the U.S. Senate for a, a U.S. senator who's in trouble. Um, and he will argue over 200 Supreme Court cases throughout the course of his life. Okay, next slide. This is his house after urbanization came. Ironically, uh, when the, the key bridge, which goes from uh, Georgetown over to Alexandria, was put in in 1941, they, they disassembled his house to rebuild it, and in the process, they, they lost the bricks. So they were going to rebuild it, and the government has no idea what happened to his house. So some things, some things don't change. Um, yeah. So can't, you, can, you can go there now. There's a little park where his house used to be, but you can't. There's no house. Um, he will go on under uh, Andrew, President Andrew Jackson to become the U.S. District Attorney for Washington, D.C., and serve in several prominent cases. He will also um, be sent down to Alabama in, in the 1830s when war is threatening between the federal and the state government down there, um, and he's asked to be a mediator between the federal and the state government. So he's, he's highly known and well-respected in his day. You know, we, if, if anybody knows him today, he's known as the writer of the National Anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. Um, but he was, he never really had a, 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 a high position of power, but he was a U.S. District Attorney, uh, and so he was very well known. Um, he will die in January of 1843 on a visit to Baltimore, visiting his daughter, and um, he basically leaves his family at that point in time. So that's an overview of his life. What I want to do now is kind of go back and look at various aspects. He's a very engaging person, and um, so I'm just, I'm just going to hit some of these categories. So his personal life. They say there were two keys. There was Farmer Key and Lawyer Key, and they said Farmer Key spent all the money that Lawyer Key made. 
He was, he was torn because uh, after his father passed away, the family farm up outside of Frederick, 15 miles south of Gettysburg, that's really where he wanted to live. But he knew that he was a lawyer and there, wasn't any, there, was, no, there, were no law, no, no, there was no business up, up there. So he was forced to basically live in D.C. when the courts were in session, and every summer they would go back home to a place that they called Pipe Creek. That's the name of the creek that flows through his, the, the hundreds of acres that they owned. So he had this constant tension in his heart between desiring to just be a simple farmer and being a lawyer in the midst of public life. And you can often see the way the courts worked back then is that the courts would sit for about three months at a time, and you'd be in court six, six days a week, Christmas Eve, the day after Christmas, you know, just nonstop. And he, his poetic nature, his desire to be a farmer just conflicted constantly. So he had this constant conflict between this is what I'm, I need to do to support my family and this is what I want to do um, because these are my life circumstances. He's a generous person. He actually buys the farm from his father to get his father out of debt but then absorbs his father's debt, which is not helpful to him. And he'll struggle with finances a good bit of his life. Uh, like I said earlier, he met his wife, Mary, Polly was a common nickname for Mary back in the day, and so he called her Polly throughout his life. And he would, and, to, and to most people, he was Frank. Uh, he met her before he was saved, and um, her father, although he was not a Christian, had left her a legacy of money that she got every year, and that helped to keep them afloat financially for a number of years. Uh, he becomes the father of 11 children, all but one lived to adulthood, and there's 24 years between the oldest and youngest. So maybe Polly was too busy to write letters. Um, he was often gone from home for long stretches at a time, and I think this is where we see some of the challenges and some of the things that he would admit he didn't do as well as he could have. Because the courts would be in session, either he would be working in Annapolis, you know, it's, uh, you know, D.C. and Annapolis are not next door, and travel is not quick back in those days. So he would go to Annapolis for weeks, weeks at a time. Sometimes he would go to Baltimore for weeks at a time for these court situations. And so he was in and out from the home, he was also, as we'll see a little bit later, he was very involved with a lot of philanthropic, charitable organizations. And any time he saw a need, he wanted to meet it. And he didn't know how to say no. And so this pulled him away from his home as well. And a lot of times, just like he has done, because that was the culture of the day, uh, he went to boarding school, so he sent his kids to boarding school. So again, he's, there's, not, not all the time, but he's, his kids are frequently not at home because they're away at school. Sometimes he tries his hand at homeschooling. He wrote in 1818 to his friend John Randolph, he said, I've got all my children at home and I'm trying to be their schoolmaster, but I'm sadly interrupted. I believe teaching four or five children is full work for any one person, and I often wish I could be left alone to do that, just that. So he even was a homeschooling dad. Um, he knew trial and tragedy in his life. Uh, where are we slide-wise? Okay. This is Washington, D.C. In the time, Georgetown is this little red uh, circle up there, and then D.C. absorbs it. You can see the blue circle there is the, um, the White House, and you can see how close it is to the river before they drain the swamp. Um, and this is, where, this is where life is for him. Go on to the next one there. Okay, one more. Where are we at? Okay. Go back, back up one more for a second, actually. Yeah, we'll leave it there for now. So this is the town. You know, he lives on the river here. Uh, he's away in Annapolis uh, for some court, and he gets a letter that his son Edward has drowned in the river at the age of eight and gone down to play, and they didn't come home, and his brother went looking for him and found his body. And this is a grief to him because Edward, at the age of eight, was the most promising, godly-wise, of his children, and he really felt the loss of that. Um, when his son Daniel is 20 years old, he's killed in a duel 
Um, he's a very hot-headed young man. He's court-martialed in the Navy, and he, uh, he gets this letter that he didn't even know about the duel until after it was over and done with. A year later, his son John, the most promising of his sons uh, vocationally, he, John had also become a lawyer, and he and, his, he and John were working together in a law firm. John suddenly got sick and died, leaving two young sons. So he knows a lot of tragedy in his life. But what I want to do, and I hope to do a few times this morning as we have time, is to just hear what he, the, the kind of person that he is when he writes about this. His daughter Anna is living in North Carolina at the time that Daniel is killed in this duel. And I just want to read some excerpts. He says, Anna, you've received your cousin Elizabeth's letter. I couldn't write to you. But my dear, we are all now more composed, and I hope God will bind up our broken hearts and enable us to submit in patience to this most awful dispensation. I don't need to tell you what a shock it was to us, so sudden and unexpected. I trust we shall endeavor to see even in this dark and mysterious providence the chastening hand of our Father, and being able to say, Thy will be done. My dear child, I know how deeply you will feel it. Call upon God to comfort and sustain you, and pray for us all that it may be sanctified to us, that we may look more faithfully to our God and Savior and prepare for a better world. Then 11 months later, he writes to the same daughter when his next son dies. We have passed through a fearful trial, but God was pleased to manifest some tokens of his love to show that it was the chastening of a father's hand. And this should quiet every complaining thought and turn all our grief to love. I prayed that his sickness might be sanctified. I feared he had been too devoted to his prospects of worldly happiness and had thought too little of his eternal interests. I determined I would take the first chance to say something to lead him to reflect upon his situation, and I reproached myself. Then in our frequent conversation, I had said so little upon the most important and interesting of all subjects, while the world and its concerns was a frequent theme of our conversations. His son John did, died, uh, did die professing Christ, and Key was comforted in the fact that that son at least knew the Lord. And John, one of John's parting words was that um, he said, um, he prayed that they would all meet and strive to meet in heaven. That's a bit of his personal life. In church life, he was an Episcopalian. Uh, the Episcopalian Church today is not known for being a bastion of truth or, or orthodoxy, um, and even in its day, it drifted from the truth. But he's what's concerned, considered a low church Episcopalian. He was an evangelical. High church would have been much more Catholic, very ritualistic, um, a lot of uh, politics within the church. But in the, the low church environment that he functioned in, he just, he was, he was a just, you've already seen in his letters, there was a, a living, passionate love of the truth for him. Uh, he was baptized into it as a child, but after he became a true Christian, his dedication to the church was tireless. He was a lay reader, which meant that anytime he was at a church and there was no pastor for the day, he would lead the services. And in early in 1814, he seriously considered leaving his law firm to become a pastor full-time, but he decided it wouldn't be best for the family, considering the, the obligations and responsibilities and debts and other circumstances that would have prevented him from doing, uh, going into ministry. He's often appointed to conventions and travels uh, and puts actually one time he put forward a motion that the church bring a resolution against gambling and other worldly amusements. It's probably because of reflecting on the influence that it had on his own life as a young man that he wanted the church to speak out against these things that would, were drawing young people away from the truth. Uh, he was often on the outs with senior leadership because of their high church or liberal ways. So he was in the church, but there was a lot of friction. Um, 
again, that's probably something I'll revisit a little bit later. And this may be sort of a stream of consciousness this morning. <laughs> so uh, as thoughts come to me, I'll share them, and I trust that it, it will, will be flowing and interesting. In, in civil life, his, his life as a citizen of the United States, war comes when he's 33. And I don't think we can dismiss how terrifying this was. Um, Havre de Grace, which is about 35 miles due south of us, was burned by the British. They would go up and down the Chesapeake Bay, burning towns, jumping off the ship, making raids offshore. It was, it was a frightening time to be here in that time. And um, I think as we live in very troublesome times of our own with, with fears and concerns, um, it's helpful to know that other Christians, even in, other Christians in America, have lived through some very frightening times. The war itself he called abominable when it started. He was not in support of the war when it started. His law practice suffered significantly because when there's a war on, there's often a lot of, not, a, not a lot of law cases going on. Things are in turmoil. Um, and just to the general uncertainties. In 1813, he writes to his friend John Randolph, and he says, I'll get this some humor in this as we consider our current day, if I did not believe we should suffer and was not moreover sure that if we are to suffer, it will do us some good. I would be filled with the most gloomy anticipations. I see nothing which promises better times. The Democrats do not want peace, and the Federalists, or a great many of them, will not let the Democrats make peace if they can help it, preferring anything to the adoption of measures that will give popularity to their opponents. Even if they know it's a good thing for the country, they won't support it because that will make the, the enemy, the other side, look good. So do you see we must become better, and suffering will make us so. Let us make up our minds to bear our share of it with patience. Eventually, the British do land an army in, on the southern end of the Chesapeake Bay down by the Patuxent River, and they march on Washington, D.C. As they approach the town of Bladensburg outside of D.C., uh, Key is in the militia and actually goes into battle for a short, very short period of time. Uh, they call these the Bladensburg races because the Americans were just steamrolled, or steamrolled by the British army, and there was no... It was a joke. The battle was a joke. Now you can go to the next slide. And the British just run through the American forces and they capture Washington, D.C. They burn the Capitol. They burn the White House. And Key's living in Georgetown. His, pa his family's already panicked. They've already moved up to Frederick. He doesn't want to leave. He feels his responsibility is to stay because he's a, he's a militia soldier and uh, a public servant. And he feels like he needs to fight. But, I mean, Dolly Madison, she rips this famous painting of, of George Washington off the wall, cuts it out of the frame, and just gets it out of there right before the British get there. It's, it's a very scary time. Um, I've, I've read that in the, the bottom of the Capitol building today, if you go in the basement in certain areas, there's still burn marks on some of the timbers there. So it's a very scary and ter terrible, discouraging time. But this will lead to what makes him famous today. During this time, as the British are marching through southern Maryland, uh, there's a guy, his name is William Beans. That sounds funny, but uh, he's a doctor, but he's an old family friend. And as the British were looting and destroying on their way through, uh, this doctor had arrested some of them because they were destroying public property. And the British then make him a prisoner of war and put him on one of their ships, and they sail north up the Chesapeake towards Baltimore. You can go to the next slide. Um, so Key, because of his prominence and because this is a family friend, he's asked to go meet the British and try to negotiate the release of this, this family friend. And you can imagine, you know, today, you know, we and the Brits get along just fine, right? But we're only about 25 years away from the American Revolution. There's still a lot of animosity, still a lot of frustration, still a lot of uncertainty. And these aren't the days in which, you know, 
you know, you go to a nice prisoner of war camp. I mean, you can still be treated badly if you're a prisoner of war. And so he, I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to go, and he was driven by duty. It takes a lot of courage to go find the enemy and try to negotiate the release of this man. And he's gone for two weeks. His family has no idea where he is. He eventually gets, meets the British fleet in the Chesapeake Bay. He gets on board one of their ships. He does negotiate the release of this uh, because some of the British soldiers said, well, the doctor did care for some of us when we were wounded. So the British are like, okay, we'll let you go. But because now you know our plans, we're not going to let you off the ship until after we attack Baltimore. And he's on the ship that night. And, and as the, uh, the cannon fire is going all night long, his, his, his wonder and his concern is in the morning is that flag's still going to be flying over the fort. You can um, turn the page there. Um, the flag's now at the Smithsonian. It's a huge flag. Uh, 30 feet by 42 feet on a 90-foot flagpole. The commander has said, I want a flag so big the British will have no difficulty seeing it from a distance. Uh, it's a little bit smaller. You can kind of see a tear line there because the, the fort's commander, that, that flag was passed down in the family, and everybody back in the 1800s like, can I have a little piece? Can I have a little piece? Um, so this flag's about eight feet shorter than it used to be, and you can see one of the stars was clipped out 150 years ago for a souvenir. So little pieces of it are all over the place. Um, it's July 4th. We're Christians here. We love our country. We love what God's done for our country. You know, this is not a perfect country. You know, there's a lot of problems here. Um, but I just, I want to understand, I want to appreciate just this, this, the heritage that we have and, and the encouragement that he had when the flag was still flying the next morning. Um, that becomes what he's known for. But as we've already seen, and I hope we'll see in the time that remains, if this had never happened, his life would still be worth knowing about. As time goes on, about 15 years after this time, he becomes the district attorney under Andrew Jackson. He's now in his 50s, and he prosecutes district and federal cases for the government. He'll handle murder cases, houses of ill repute, which we know today as brothels. He deals with gambling. He deals with slavery uh, issues, with freedom, trying to negotiate freedom. He prosecutes a man who tries to assassinate Andrew Jackson, but back in the day, uh, they had the gun, you know, the gunpowder was sensitive to, uh, it was a wet, moist morning, and he fired a point blank at the president, and the president, and neither, neither of the guns went off. But Andrew Jackson, being the kind of guy he was, just went after him with his cane um, and didn't need the Secret Service in those days. Uh, speaking of canes, um, Sam Houston, which you probably know that name, he was also prone to hitting people with canes, and he had hit one of his enemies on a street. He attacked him with his cane. And Key is called on Sam by Sam Houston to defend him on the floor of the House of Representatives uh, for brutally attacking another House of Representatives member. Um, so he gets he gets he rubs shoulders with a lot of prominent people in his day. Um, charitable causes in his life. There's too many to count. He's a member of the American Bible Society, the American Sunday School Union, something called the Society for the Propagation of Useful Knowledge, um, as opposed to the propagation of useless knowledge. I don't know. <laughs> um, he gives lots of speeches. He's in demand. Uh, he, he's involved in politics, you know, as, as many people would have been in those days. But um, he just, his hands are full. But an area I want to focus on is his spiritual life. His conversion, we don't really know how he became a Christian specifically. Well, we know how. We don't know when. We don't know those exact circumstances. Um, but we know that he really grieved of his, over his, his early life and his childhood, his teenage years. At some point, he's visiting the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. This is a hospital. I'm not sure if the whole hospital was devoted to mental illness or whether there was a ward there. 
But as he was walking through, he, he saw people whose bodies were functional but whose minds were not, and it became a metaphor for him of his earlier life. He said, such was my crime, my, with life, health, and reason blessed. And heart with rapture glowing, I looked around on this fair seeming world and chose its joys for my sole portion. I scorned everything beyond this world as vain and visionary. Nothing eternal was just imaginary to him. No warm thought of love to him who made me what I was ever kindled its pure flame within my breast that burned with earthly and unholy fires. I didn't think of him except in doubt and fear, and I did not speak of him except in jest or in wrath. But such was my punishment. The beam from heaven that pours its light into the mind of man was suddenly extinguished, and a shroud darker than that of death encircled me. In this gloom, filled with terrifying scenes, how long I lived, if the dread agony could be called life at all, I do not know. To the dead and the, and the condemned, time measures not his steps, and every moment seems like eternity." He'll go on in 1808. By 1808, he's a Christian. We don't know exactly when, but he writes to a, a cousin of his, and he reflects on his young life, and he's cautioning his cousin not to live the life that he had lived. He says, I'm a few years before you in life, and I wish you to have the benefit of my experience. So take my word. Until a man becomes seriously and strongly impressed with religious sentiments, until he believes in his heart that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Master, and joins with Paul saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? Until then, a man's course in life will neither be safe or pleasant. The thousands around you who are careless and indifferent upon this subject might seem happy, but they aren't. I once had no more religious concern than they did, and full as much right to be happy as they did. My only regret now is that I was so long blinded by my pleasures, vices, and pursuits, and the examples of others, from seeing, admiring, and adoring the marvelous light of the gospel. And said... George, we've both been blessed with mothers of rare and fervent piety, which is a great advantage in these degenerate times. We should never be unmindful of it. So if you're blessed with a, a mother of rare and fervent piety in these degenerate times, be thankful. In 1817, he goes to Philadelphia. He has surgery. I'm not quite sure. That part of the letter has been scrubbed out very very definitely. Somebody didn't want us to know why he had the surgery. I don't know if it was a child or he himself, but, uh, but he goes through a very, it's a, it's a frightening time. You know, surgery in 1817 is not surgery in 2023. Um, it's, or maybe it is, I don't know, depending on where you're having your surgery, but, <laughs> um, but you can imagine that the fear of, of going through surgery, but he goes through that and he talks about one of the most comforting things to him was the hymn by William Cooper, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord. And it's neat to realize that for 200 years that hymn has given comfort to God's people. But he desires to leave a written record of thanks to God because the, he said there were times in my life when I, God spared my life and I didn't record it. And he refers to a couple of those times. God's providence. We talked about Fuchita a few years ago, a few weeks ago. Key, you know, anybody that handles a gun knows the stupidity of this. So he's, at some time in the past, he has, uh, he's out hunting and he's got to cross a farmer's fence. And as he crosses the fence, he's tired. He leans his head on the butt, on the, on the butt muzzle of the rifle just to take a break. And then after he moves it, the gun goes off. You know, it's like, it's it, it just like he said, but I was so ungrateful. I did not acknowledge God's providence and mercy in that at that time. I, why? I don't know. The second time, he's out at a party with his wife, and they're coming home late. And he's, whether he's had too much to drink or whatever, but he's flying through the dark. And the carriage wheel catches the the fence post and, and breaks the um, breaks the carriage and he goes flying and uh, if the carriage had not been stopped by the fence post he probably would have been crushed and killed 
but he wants to. And this is a, you know, if you have these moments in life where God is gracious, write these things down. I've not been consistent. I've done this periodically in the past, but write these things down so you can go back to them, so your kids can go back to them. Make a record of these, these standing stones as the Israelites did in the book of Joshua. I want to jump ahead a little bit now, talk about the issue of slavery, because that is where uh, basically that gives modern society the right to dismiss everything he ever said and did. And how do we think about Christians in the past and the issue of slavery? I can't, in the next 15 minutes, I can't really summarize that, but Kevin DeYoung wrote a helpful um, article, I think it was Kevin DeYoung, a few years ago, about how should we think of Christians of the past who have, who have sins, especially sins that are mortal sins in our society. And he said we should consider how the Bible talks about other people. How does the New Testament talk about Old Testament people? How does the New Testament talk about David? How does the New Testament talk about Samson? You know, the Bible doesn't hide David's sins, but David is lifted up as a man worthy of being followed. Same thing of, you, you look at who's in Hebrews 11. Samson, Jephthah. You look at how Peter talks about Lot, just Lot. You would not get that from the Old Testament, but that's what's lifted up in the New Testament. That's how the New Testament tells us to think about Lot. And it may be hard, depending on where your experiences have taken you, where you're coming from in life. It may be hard to consider people like he when there are these glooming issues of slavery that are a part of his life. But I would encourage us, if we as Christians can't think properly about the past, we can't hope anybody else will. And so this is an important way, time to consider how, and I, I will hopefully visit this again in a, later this summer as we get to another person where this is a relevant situation. But I'd say let's use the golden rule when we speak of others, even if it's others from past generations. Um, do we want future generations to talk about us with the same grace or with the same judgment that we use towards our predecessors? Um, can we give people from the past the benefit of having lived in a day and age that was different, not dismissing things that necessarily they did wrong, but being gracious? And in some ways, we have clarity on issues because they work their way through those issues. And we wouldn't have that clarity if they hadn't struggled through them. So Key and slavery. Key's background. He had never known life apart from slavery. Slavery was just a part of daily life. It was just like the air he breathed. Um, personally, he didn't like it, although he owned slaves. And he wanted it abolished, but he never freed all of his slaves. And he will take heat from both sides throughout his life for this issue. He will take heat from people in the further, further in the South for being too sympathetic towards slavery and towards the black people of our nation. And he will take heat from the abolitionists up north who felt like he wasn't doing enough and he was a compromiser. Um, where are we at slide-wise? Okay. Let me jump ahead another one. Okay. Um, here's an example of him taking heat from the southerners. This is a southern newspaper. Uh, there's a white uh, naval officer on trial and a black man is called to testify against him and his evidence is found to be valid and the white officer is convicted. And so... This is what the paper says about President Van Buren. His cloven hoof is shown. You know, we, we look at the way that we talk about politicians today. Um, it was no different. So the, basically calling uh, President Van Buren the devil incarnate with his cloven hoof. Um, and the, his cloven hoof is shown because of something Francis Kaki says, which is uh, that Negroes under the U.S. law are good witnesses against white men. In other words, their, their, their testimony should be accepted in a court of law. So here's, on one side, you know, he's a slave owner. On another side, he is someone who is saying black person's um, testimony is acceptable under the court of law. 
Um, I'd like to read a, a little excerpt. A very fascinating thing happened. In an, an abolitionist, someone who wanted to abolish slavery um, actively and quickly, wrote to him and said, I'm a Christian up north, you're a Christian down south. And some ministers up here have been asked to write to Southerners to say, what's the, what's the perspective? How do you view slavery? And he said, we were trying to gather information. We're not trying to just condemn you out of hand. We're trying to really see how do you look at this. And they said, do Christians in the South, do they believe that keeping slaves as it's practiced in this country is in line with God's will or his word? And if not, how do they justify it? And Key will answer back and forth. And um, I, it would be a whole topic in and of itself. I can't really get into that. But basically he will say that the Bible, he does not feel the Bible absolutely condemns it, nor does it absolutely approve it, and then it has to be handled on a case-by-case basis. And what I like to say is that whatever we may think of where he falls in this issue, he was wrestling with how do I interpret the word of God in this day in which I live, in the situation. Um, yeah, I, I wish, I, I, I feel like I'm not going to be able to do justice with the time that I have, but I want us to at least know that there are issues and perspectives that need to be taken into account as we're considering history and as we're looking at the situation. The abolitionist asked, well, why don't we just free all the slaves? Why don't we just instantly? And, and he said, well, you know, I have. And this is, this is something he's wrestling with. As a responsible person, he's trying to say, like, how would I want to be treated? And we can disagree with his, um, with his verdict or how he makes the, what decision he makes. But let us know that he's wrestling with how do I apply the word of God in my specific situation? He himself had freed six or seven of his slaves, but he did so having given them a probationary time first where they were allowed to try to live on their own because he said, I've seen, I've seen, he saw, I saw many times where slaves would just be set free and they had not been prepared to live on their own. And they ended up living in the gutter, living just horrible lives. And he felt like it was wrong to just like cast people out into the wilderness like that. And that's one of the reasons he, he was working through the situation. He said, I've emancipated seven of my slaves. They're done pretty well. And six now living are supporting themselves comfortably and credibly. But this is all they are doing. And I fear that when age and infirmity come, they will suffer. And I put them through several years of probation in good circumstances so that when they were emancipated, they survived better than most of the others who had just been set free. And yet I am still a slave owner. And I could not, without the greatest inhumanity, be otherwise. I own, for instance, an old slave who has done no work for me for years. I pay his board and other expenses and cannot believe that I sin in doing so. So I just have to leave it there for now, but I just want us to wrestle with this. And if you've got questions, I can probably, I can talk more later, but I don't want to lose the rest of our time. And so there are issues we have to wrestle with when it comes to these things, but they're not easy. Very few things are as easy when you actually and honestly wrestle with the facts, the circumstances, and how people try to process things. Of all the charitable things he did in his life, the thing that drove his heart the most was called the American Colonization Society. And this was a project where people who felt that the best way to provide a good existence for people who had been slaves was to set them free and to send them to Africa. Now, that can sound paternalistic. It can sound like just get out of our country. But in the mindset, these people had been stolen from their country, from their, their nation, from their, their continent. And, you know, if we had been captured or our grandparents had been captured and taken, wouldn't it be 
and nobody was sent against their will. They were all sent voluntarily back if they were free. Um, let go to the next slide. Um, one more. So the nation of Liberia exists today because of the American Colonization Society. This is their motto, and this is their flag. And the history of Liberia has been a very messy, very violent, very bloody. So it didn't, hasn't worked out well, but it was well intended. And um, some good has come from, from the work that was done. But this put him in the middle ground, hated, hated by slave owners in the south and hated by abolitionists in the north. And yet somebody who for 30 years did what he believed God wanted him to do, and he said, I hate slavery, I'd love to see it abolished, but I fear that if we just instantly stop it, it's going to create all kinds of chaos and could lead to civil war, which he's saying 20 years before the war starts. <clears throat> so I think I'll have to leave that topic um, as an example of how things are misused and abused today, uh, someone criticized Key. They said, oh, well, he did free one of his slaves, but he snuck across the border to Pennsylvania and freed him up there so nobody would see. Well, that's a, a spin that you can put on that, but I found an article or a letter that he wrote, and he said, you know, the laws of Maryland, they're not really good for slaves, and if you try to free a slave, what's called manumission, if you do that, it's easy to get them put back into slavery. If you truly want to free a slave and make sure you stay free, you need to go to Pennsylvania to do that because the laws will be held and kept there. So while he's blamed for sneaking across the border to free a slave so nobody would see, he actually does this to make sure that the slave that he frees is truly set free and kept that way. Um, so just a brief analysis of his life. He would be the first to admit his failures. He was inconstant in family life, spent too much time on other things and away from home. See if this resonates with you, 1814. My excuse for writing is, I assure you, a sincere one. I am always hurried, and yet I do nothing. Besides what is properly called business, I have a thousand other concerns, which some people get through without trouble, but would embarrass me because I'm a wretched manager of time and everything else. I believe it is in some measure owing to my being always in a hurry and trying to do more than I can. So I've been reminded that I have tendencies to that myself and I'm probably not the only one um, but trying to think how what can what are we doing what are our priorities in life even the good priorities there's not humanly speaking there's just, we can't do them all even if our heart yearns I'd love to be helping this person I'd love to be helping that person I'd love to be but where where are our priorities and how can we manage them but I would say he was a, a, a shining light in his generation he used the Bible his letters are full of biblical counsel and encouragement he often used his letters to evangelize or disciple his recipients, and he had the courage to stand for his beliefs. Even if we disagree with some of his decisions today, his courage and perseverance are worthy of emulation. And he was faithful to the end. I just want to briefly share an amazing story of how his conversion and God's providence. He had a friend in school when he was a child named Daniel Murray, and... Throughout, as he became adults, Daniel became a Christian and had a profound influence on Key. Late in life, they're talking, and Key says, Daniel, I'm so thankful for your godly example because it was through your example that I became a Christian. And Daniel says, well, did you, don't you know how I became a Christian? And he said, no. He said, when we were kids, we board, in that boarding school at St. John's College, every night, your mom had taught you a hymn when you were a kid, and you, you would say that every night just as a matter of habit before you went to bed. And as you would say that hymn or pray that prayer, it had a profound influence on me, and God used it to save me. And Key will say, isn't it amazing that in God's providence, a mother prays for her child that he'll become a Christian. But God doesn't save him directly. 
He uses something that she does. She teaches him this little prayer, this little hymn. And God uses that to save his friend. And then his friend grows to become a godly man. And then, and just, you know, we wouldn't write stories like that. We, our lives. And so persevere in your training of your children. You have no idea how that, that the fruit can come back from that in years to come. And um, I'd like to close in the last few minutes, if, if you could come up, Beverly. Um, there's a, a well-known hymn that he well, used to be well-known, I should say, um, that, uh, that he wrote, and I think it expresses. It goes to the tune of What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So um, bear with my non-musically trained abilities. I'm, I'm not terrible, but I'm not a per- trained singer. So if we could just maybe just stand and sing this. And um, <clears throat> this is four verses. Each verse is on two different um, Death away. 
pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your people who've gone on before us, who've struggled through times of uncertainty, um, times of failure as humans, as fathers, as husbands, as citizens. Thank you that you judge us uh, through mercy and you reward us for faithfulness. And we're not judged by our, our generation or the generation that follows. And we're thankful for your grace. It hasn't changed. We can sing a song from 200 years ago, and it's exactly true in every line for us today. And on this July 4th weekend, as we think of a, a man whose life was very important in our nation's history, I pray that we would remember that we have a brother in Christ uh, and many brothers and sisters in Christ that we look forward to being with before long. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.